Allison. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the studio. Yeah, for once, we're in the same place. Yeah, wonderful. Our listeners will notice. It feels a bit like old times. Um, I want to introduce you to this little person. She's called Emmeline. Get up, Bob, said Dad. But Bob didn't. Did. So she's a six-year-old French girl, and she's, as you hear, uh, learning to read in English at home. M. Hot, she said. Mm, yeah, she sounds like she's doing pretty well. She is, and she's being taught by her mum. So, okay, this is France. Schools are still open in COVID times. Mm. So the fact that she's at home, kind of different homeschooling? You got it. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I know there's a move for homeschooling in the United States. Often it's parents who want to give religious education to their kids. Um, is this a thing in France? Well, the numbers are small, much smaller than those in the States. Currently, there are around about 63,000 children being homeschooled. So that's only 0.4% of kids of school age here. Not many. No. So compulsory education is between 3 and 16 now. But there has been a big increase in the numbers over the last couple of years. Now, no one was really talking much about it in France until recently. In fact, many people didn't even know that you're allowed to homeschool here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does really seem counter to this this idea of a, a sort of centralized and, and Republican education is put forward in France. Yeah, but it turns out that what is obligatory in France, Sarah, isn't going to school, but instruction itself. And parents have the right to choose how and where that is done. Okay, so it is legal. Um, not many people are doing it, but as you said, it is becoming a big talking point these days. Yeah, because it features in the separatism bill, which is uh, currently going through Parliament. Right, right. That bill now is has been renamed the Defending Republican Values Bill. Yeah. Um, it's the government's response to tackling extremism in general, but in particular radical Islamism, this in the wake of a series of terrorist attacks. Yeah, and part of the bill involves homeschooling. The government maintains that some parents are registering their kids as being homeschooled and then in fact they're putting them into these clandestine classes where they can be indoctrinated and in fact it's all part of this separatist culture which is seeking to undermine the republic. So it's a big accusation. Indeed. In October President Macron himself said that he wanted to ban homeschooling outright, ah. make every child in France go to school from the age of three to 16. That has since been watered down and Article 21 of the bill now aims to make it simply harder for families to homeschool. So they'll have to obtain authorization from the Ministry of Education rather than just declaring what they're doing at the beginning of the school year. So you'll have to prove that your child needs it for health reasons, because they're disabled or because they live far away from a school or they're doing high level sports, for example. The upshot is that you won't be able to homeschool for religious reasons. And so is that why most parents in France do choose to homeschool? It's impossible to get figures on ah. this. France, as we know, doesn't officially collect religious or ethnic data. True. But researchers have found that the motivations for families homeschooling are very, very varied. Some are doing it for religious reasons, not just Muslim families, but also Catholic and Jewish families who are very unhappy with public schools. And then there are people who think that schools are too strict, not child 
child-friendly, child-centered enough, so they're in favor of more alternative teaching methods. Some people take their kids out of school because they've been bullied, mm. for example, and then others, they just fall into it and they like it. That was the case for a woman called Anne Belliard. She's Emmeline's mum, the little girl we heard at the beginning. Mm. She's a former physics teacher and her husband is in the Navy and they've been doing it for nearly four years now. I spent the afternoon in their modern flat in Paris to see how homeschooling actually works. Tu préfères bazar bizarre? Ok. Voilà. Yeah. Yeah. On va poser ça comme ça. Bazar bizarre. Et Arthur, il veut jouer aussi. Anne Belliard is sitting on the floor in the living room around a low table playing a card game with Emmeline and Arthur. Arthur. Attention, vous êtes prêts? Oui. Attends, Arthur, il est beaucoup trop loin des objets là. On va y arriver, c'est bon, vous êtes bien? Oui. 1, 2, 3. It is a card game and it is a fun game. And it's also used to work on concentration skills a lot. And it works on uh, this whole set of skills to reduce impulsivity and to think before doing. I think that is the most important skill in school. <laughs> because you need to think and then write and not just answer right away. Anne is a former high school teacher and she knows what the kids are picking up, even if they think they're just playing. Most of the maternal skills are really life skills anyway, like counting to 30, <laughs> like um, noticing when your name is written, like starting to read. Oh, no. It's a long day. Arthur is struggling to let his mum be interviewed in English and keeps grabbing her attention. On va faire le gâteau tout à l'heure. Tu voudras faire le gâteau avec moi? Est-ce que tu veux que je te mette le, le livre de recettes comme ça tu regardes et tu choisis le gâteau? Oui. She gets him to look at a recipe book and choose a cake that they can bake together later. Baking is a fun way of teaching weights and measures, but they also do a few more academic-looking worksheets every day. We do like structured learning for less than an hour, usually around 15-20 minutes every day. And the rest of the day is just their projects or visits or games or cooking or going to the park or doing a little bit of gardening in, on the balcony. <laughs> and I try to just be there, observe what they're doing and remember what they're doing so I can check the skills in my little table on my computer while they're not noticing. That little table on the computer is for the benefit of the Ministry of Education inspector who comes along once a year. Home educators don't have to follow a curriculum as such, but they do have to make sure their kids know the fundamentals, which basically amounts to reading, writing and arithmetic. They come every year they have a chat with us and they see the kids just to check that they are schooled <laughs> and they're learning and we are trying to cover everything. Anne has a copy of the official curriculum for Cycle 2 on her table, the programme for the first three years of primary school. Emmeline is in Year 1, what's known as SIPI. I've been working on a table with everything she should know, and then when she gets something that's in the list, I just write it down with the date. So I have a clear view of what she learns, and maybe if I see that there's some gaps... I will maybe try to schedule like 
a museum visit or something like that. Hopefully we can do that soon. Or to get some kind of game that works on that specific skills and hope it goes well. Usually it does. Homeschooling under COVID has become complicated. Museums are closed. Families can't get together in their usual big groups in the forest. Ordinarily, Anne Belliard says she and her family are very sociable. We are not uh, separate. I mean, we are fully in the French society, that's for sure. I mean, I work on weekends. I'm a face painter and body painter. I work, my husband works for the French government. <laughs> and we have friends and we meet people and uh, we go shopping and we say hi to the bread seller. <laughs> And the kids are picking up Republican values like liberty, equality, fraternity and laicity, or French secularism. Yeah, the kids have seen flags. They recognize the French and European flag when we see them in, in the streets. <laughs> we have read the devise. We've met the French principles on buildings and on, in books as well. And regarding religion and laicity, we don't have a religion in our family, but we see churches, we see people wearing kippahs, we've seen mosques or stuff like that, and we just explain when, when the question arrives. Cake. Cake. Mm. Quick. Quick. I will as Emmeline sits on her mum's knee learning to read in English, you can see the thrill that every parent has helping their kid open windows onto the world. Super, Emmeline, bravo. Tu peux poser la clé. Salut. Désolé, je t'ai pas entendu. Every Wednesday, Emmeline attends an English class alongside local school kids. But you can't help wondering if she isn't missing out on something by not attending school every day. Would you like to go to school every day? No. no. Why not? Because if I go all day, I can do things with my family. What's your favourite activity? It's water paint. Watercolours? Watercolour. Are you learning with Mummy? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. You're learning together? Yeah. Does she ever ask you if she can go to school? No, she really doesn't want to. I've asked her, especially since this uh, low project has come up, I'm like, okay, if she wants to, I'm just not going to worry about it and she, I'm going to send her and everything will be fine, everyone will be happy. But uh, I asked and she said to me that she's happy going on Wednesdays, but she wants to stay home. Two other homeschool kids have arrived and they chat away happily building Lego vehicles and doing puzzles on the floor. But Anne admits homeschooling can be tough. Being with your children all day, every day and all night, every night is really hard, especially in the context of a lockdown and stressful times and stuff like that. It's really hard. But at least I know why I'm doing it. My children have the opportunity to learn when they're ready and when they want to learn. And being ready and wanting to learn something make learning really easy and fun. 
Some psychologists are critical of homeschooling. They say it deprives kids of the chance to prepare themselves for the tough real world and a competitive French society. But Anne doesn't agree. I think you can defend yourself a lot better when you have a safe place and when you're confident and when you know you're both than when you have been just pushed under water your whole life, basically. And I think we need confident people. But I've seen a lot of children who are not happy in the French system. <laughs> the Belliard family leave with another homeschooling family and head off to the local park. The carefree four-year-old Arthur dashes off like a shot to splash in puddles in the rain, far from his mother's watch. So it doesn't sound like this family is much of a threat to the Republic, um, mm. but how typical are they? It's difficult to say, Sarah. Here in Paris, this kind of, shall we say, middle class, quite well-educated homeschooling family isn't unusual. But outside of big cities, the profiles can be quite different. I spoke to one of the inspectors that we heard about in the report from the Ministry of Education. She works in one of the poorer suburbs to the northwest of Paris. Now, she and her colleagues can't ask directly questions about things like radicalization or even religion but they find ways of getting information they can ask children for example to draw the room where they study to see how many chairs they draw for example if there are several it could suggest that they're having classes in groups which isn't allowed that's an interesting way of getting information <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah quite clever has she seen an increase in these types of families not necessarily an increase in radicalization, but she has seen an increase in some very worrisome cases. The ones that worry her the most are families who, as she says, have slipped down the social ladder and have taken their kids out of school. They're often unemployed. They've become very wary of the French system, wary of authority in general. So they're really checking out. Some of those families don't even turn up for the checks when they're asked. And there's nothing much the inspectors can do about it because they don't follow the same cases one year after another. Uh, it doesn't sound like an ideal situation. Um, and it does sound like there are concerns with, with the homeschooling system. So this new law, will it address these concerns? Well, if the law is approved, it would knock out families who didn't have a particular medical or psychological reason or geographical reason to homeschool. Um, but it's not clear that in itself it would deal with the current rogue families. You know, if they're not showing up, they're not showing up, mm. right? But it might have an impact on families who are thinking of mm. homeschooling. So if France is questioning the right to homeschool, and it would seem to be the case, then why not call private schools into question as well, especially religious ones, which have no contract with the state and can more or less teach what they like. Monsieur André Citroën, et avec Monsieur Ford Henry, c'est le travail à la chaîne qu'il a ramené dans notre chère patrie. La France agricole devient industrielle grâce à des patrons comme lui. Les ouvriers se précipitent quai de Javel pour goûter les joies de ce progrès inouï. Voici les tractions avant. Ah, France, the land of cars. Yeah, there are three big companies today, Renault, Peugeot and 
as we heard in that piece of music, Citroën. Yeah, all these companies founded by industrialists in the late 19th, early 20th century. Citroën was the latest to the game, arguably the most colorful. Mm -hmm. André Gustave Citroën started out making gears, and he founded his car company in 1919. He was born 143 years ago this week, on February 5th, 1878. Yeah, I'm so glad he was born that he lived. <laughs> I love Citroën cars. I love the way when you turn on the ignition that they lift up a bit. <laughs> sort of like a flying saucer. Henri <laughs> 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 Gustave didn't start out wanting to make cars, um, though from the get-go he knew he wanted to be an engineer. He grew up in Paris in a fairly well-off Jewish household. His mother was from Poland, father from the Netherlands, was a diamond speculator, and actually committed suicide when Henri Gustave was six after he'd gotten involved in a bad business deal. Um, André was a good student. He actually saw the Eiffel Tower being built in the 1898 Universal Expo and was inspired to become an engineer. Yeah, not the only one who's Probably. been inspired by the great Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yeah. Reportedly, as a kid also, he discovered the writing of Jules Verne, who remained an inspiration. He graduated from the École Polytechnique, a top engineering school. And on a trip to Poland, he saw a prototype for gears with a, a fishbone pattern of Vs instead of the standard tooth gears. It made the gears turn more efficiently with less noise. Citroën saw an opportunity. The design was good, but they were hard to manufacture. So he bought the license in 1901, and he found a way to make them in France. He opened a factory on the banks of the Seine in Paris. The logo of this factory was two upside-down Vs like the gears. And that is still the Citroën car logo today. Yeah, yeah. Citroën um, was launched on his industrialist career with these gears. His success caught the attention of the Mons Car Company. It was a car company at the time, has since gone under. They were having trouble and he helped them increase their production and he learned he had a knack for organization and he became intrigued by what Henry Ford was doing in the United States with assembly lines. And by this point we were getting close to World War One. Yep, yep, André Citroën was mobilized to the Eastern Front and he actually ended up building a munitions factory on the Quai de Javel in Paris. He had realized that France was definitely at a disadvantage um, with the Germans because they didn't have enough shells. Mm. After the war he decided to convert this into a car factory. Um, at the time Time, Paris was becoming the world's car capital. France made more cars than the Germans or the Americans at the time. He founded the Citroën Automobile Company in 1919. He wanted to make an affordable car. The first one, the Type A, was an adaptation of Ford's Model T. It cost about half as much as the cheapest on the market at the time. And as he developed his cars, he introduced technical innovations, but he was also brilliant at marketing. Mm -hmm. um, he was one of the first to have professional artists and designers to work in the factory. Um, he actually advertised the brand Citroën rather than the specific cars. That was a big deal at the time. Famously, in 1925, he had his name emblazoned um, down the Eiffel Tower, 250,000 light bulbs, Citroën. 250,000 yeah. light bulbs. Clearly, ecology wasn't a thing at that time. Definitely not. Definitely not. He was the first to offer test drives to potential consumers. He staged elaborate stunts to show off the safety and quality of his cars. Uh, he worked on developing taxis. He also set up a network of rural transport, the Car Citroën or Citroën buses, which became part of the culture. Hmm. Um, by 1929, Citroën was producing a third of France's cars, one of the largest manufacturers in the world. But it had budget problems. I mean, from the get-go, definitely André Citroën was a better industrialist than accountant and had lots of debt. Uh, and then, I guess, the effects of the Great Depression were also being felt here in France. Yep, didn't help the finances. 
1934, Citroën introduced the Traction Avant, a car with front-wheel drive. It was a huge success, mm. but um, developing it took too much out of the company. It actually went bankrupt the following year. Citroën lost his company to Michelin, which is, had provided the, the tires for the cars. They were friends of his um, and the company's main creditor. In January 1935, Citroën gave up all of his shares. In February, he was admitted to hospital, and he died in July of stomach cancer, and he's just 57 years old. Died very young, but what an eventful life. And, of course, the company kept going. Yep, the brand name was too strong. The cars were pretty good. In 1976, to avoid another bankruptcy, the government asked Peugeot to acquire a major stake in the company, and now, today, it is the PSA Peugeot Citroën Company. The site of André Citroën's famous factory is now a park in Paris along the River Seine. La meilleure des polices demeure inégalable. Dans l'art de tous nous mettre à table, tous en place, tous remis en cage, doux, sages, sans effusion ni rage, aucun usage, d'aucune trique. So, Alison, we've been talking um, recently a bit about police violence. Yeah, here in the podcast, but uh, French media has been addressing it on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, lots of protests, and it's definitely become a thing, but it hasn't always been the case. And you might say one of the reasons why it's part of the conversation today is a media called the Bondi Blog. It started in 2005 during the riots in the banlieue, the poor suburbs to the north of Paris. I remember it well, yeah. For weeks, people were burning cars and public buildings. It all started after two young men were electrocuted when they hid in an electrical substation, having been chased by police. Mm -hmm. And their deaths really sparked a lot of simmering frustrations that were there about police harassment in these neighborhoods, uh, more broadly about unemployment, the lack of opportunity in Seine-Saint-Denis. So that's France's poorest département. It's also its youngest, mm -hmm. uh, there's a high percentage of people of immigrant background living there. Yeah, yeah, lots going on there. And at the time, French journalists didn't really go. I mean, reporting mm -hmm. on the riots was about the burning cars, but from a distance. There were very few stories of, of, of the actual young people themselves, why they were angry and why they were doing what they were doing. A group of Swiss journalists decided to go and report on the ground, and they set up in Bondy, one of the cities in the area. Serge Michel, the editor of the publication, quickly saw an opportunity to give young people a chance to write about themselves. And the Bondy blog was born on November 11, 2005, three days after a state of emergency was declared in the banlieue. But the blog lived on. Yep, yeah, it outlived the riots. It became a media outlet for young people in the suburbs writing about themselves and the issues that concern them, um, what they weren't seeing in the mainstream media. The Bondi blog has published a book to commemorate its 15 years. Latifa Ulquir, who currently runs the blog, she's one of two full-time employees working with about 60 bloggers. She was 15 when it was founded. She says it's telling about the relationship between the French media and the banlieue that this project started with an outsider, with Swiss journalists, not French. The point was not telling just about Bondi. The point was to give a voice to people living in the poor suburbs and uh, to make the, their voice wait in the national debate. And so what kinds of stories? I mean, what are we talking about? Because of uh, the riots of 2005, we were the first to use the term of um, violence from the police. 
Because previously, police violence wasn't really an issue being written about or talked about. It was very difficult for people who don't live in the suburbs to understand that、uh, policemen can be violent. That there is kind of、uh, the, the fear of the police for some young people in the in the suburbs. So it was a, a, kind of our first、uh, topic. So we have this topic. We have also inequalities towards education. So young people writing about how they don't have teachers. Uh, it's very important to us also to、uh, talk about history of immigration in France. Why are we here, in fact, and what is the story of our parents? Well, you you say we, so this is you, of course. Can you talk about your experience? When did you start with the Bondi blog yourself? I was twenty three when I came to the Bondi blog for the first time, but I knew the media. I was in a law school at that time. I wanted to be a journalist, but knowing no one doing this job, that made it very difficult to get into it if you don't know anybody. Yeah, and、um, so I finished my law studies, and uh, I uh, began to write for the Bondi blog about social and political issues. When I came to the Bondi blog, I found just people like me. From the same social background with a similar story, my parents be- belong to the worker class. My father arrived in France in 1967 from Morocco, and when I came to, I entered to the law school. The friend I made here, we didn't have the same life. I came to the Bonny Blog and I stayed because of the, this feeling of freedom. I felt like, wow, I can speak freely and be understood. So now, I mean, you're talking about all these issues, like you brought up, like police violence,、um, you know, inequality in education, talking about immigrant experiences, all these things that today the mainstream media has started talking about in a better way. And I mean, do do you see the Bondi blog as having had any kind of role in that? I know that the Bondi blog is read by journalists, so I think there is a kind of influence. And we have another impact is that we have journalists who worked at the Bondi Blog who today works in other media, in kind of mainstream media. Bondi Blog has a training program now with a journalism school in Lille. We're doing a, a sort of preparatory course to get people into the journalism school. Why is that kind of thing important? It、uh, helps students to prepare the exams, and all their fees are paid. It's not、uh, easy for everyone to pay all the exams and to pay to have、um, you know a preparation. A lot of、uh, these students, without this partnership, they will not be able to enter to j- these journalism schools. In France, you can't be a journalist, or it's very hard to be a journalist if you don't have a journalism school degree, right? Yeah. There has been a, a shift then.、Uh, you know, you you go and get trained at the Bondi Blog, and then you go and get a job at a bigger media. What's the impact there? People who were formed at the Bondi Blog, bringing、yeah. their experiences, their their knowledge about how to talk about poor people, how to talk about immigrants, in a right way. Is the mainstream media now, you know, doing it properly, or is there still some work to be done? There's a lot of work to be done when we see how、uh, we talk about、um, Muslims. It's kind of caricatural. We speak about Muslims and Islam only. When there are problems, it's never or rarely related to a positive thing, and you know the kind of、uh, it looks like some journalists are a little bit lazy. 
when it comes to these questions. I understand and I know that it's a hard question, it can be uh, sensitive, but some journalists do their work by looking at things that will confirm their preconceived ideas. What we want to do is to let people speak of themselves. When we talk about Muslim, when we talk about a girl wearing a veil, we are going to ask her to give her voice and the French media uh, took a lot of time to do that. For a long time, you heard just experts talking about women yeah. wearing veils and often they were men on yeah. top of it. <laughs> and I remember uh, in 2004 when there are a lot of debate about uh, the meaning of the veil, what it is, etc. No woman was invited. And that's our point. We say that we have to take testimonies of people we talk about. You're still seeing that today, that there's not been a shift in how people are talking about Islam and, and religion and French media. No, no, no shift. But what I see is that people take charge of their own stories. They don't want to wait for media anymore. They create podcasts, videos, Instagram pages where they can tell their truths and realities. And that's, this is a good thing. Um, as a journalist, I would say that it's not totally a good thing because the, the, the way to treat journalistically a, a topic is important. Um, but it's a good thing because it helps, I think, journalists to improve their work. Um. Talking about media, I mean, we're in the era, right, of fake news. Um, you know, with this fake news, there's a need for media education. Can you can you talk about that? It's something that is very important because we see the impact of uh, social medias on real lives. Uh, you know, just I think two years ago, we have an information on social medias, fake fake news, telling that people from Romania. Two men from Romania driving a white car are stealing children in our suburbs, you know. There, yeah, there was a rumor going around they were going and kidnapping yeah, children. Yeah, there, there, there was a rumor. And at that time, we, we went to schools, in high school, and all the, the children telling us that, yes, it was true. And I was explaining them that I talked to policemen. They told me there was uh, fake information. But some young people went to beat people from Romania hearing that. It sparked people, yeah, going and beating up Romas and, and causing a real problem there. Exactly. And we were unable to do anything. We decided to find money to hire journalists who will exclusively work on uh, social medias and videos and to explain them all what is happening on social media, but about all the aspects, you know, on influencers, on how to all you can find, in fact, on, on social media and to work on that because it's a kind of shame that we have no media who works totally about on that. So so that incident in particular sparked this, you said, actually, we need to be able to provide media inform, information about the media that young people are yeah, because which is social media. No one is doing it. So we're talking about the Bondi blog 15 years after it started. Um has being part of the Bondi blog changed like how, pe how people see you? Can you talk about the perception of the media has changed over the last 10, 15 years? 
the perception has changed because uh, media saw that we provide information of uh, high quality, if I can say. And I think the perception changed because people realize that we are journalists, but we are engaged. I think more and more the fact of being a journalist and engaged is um, better seen today than 15 years ago. We are just not uh, kind of hypocritical and arguing to be neutral because there is no neutral journalist. That's it for Spotlight on France this week. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And do get in touch. You can send us questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We also post extra material like photos and videos on our Instagram. We're Spotlight on France. And Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And we'll be back in two weeks, Thursday, February 18th. Until then, you can find previous episodes of Spotlight on France at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.